Well, good morning. As you can tell, I am not with you on campus this morning because our family is quarantined. So uh, I taught 10 weeks in a row to virtually an empty room, and we've managed to make it 15 months uh, without me having to do that. But uh, here I am today. Uh, for those of you who watch online, this is pretty much no different uh, for you than it normally is. And a lot of you, if you're honest, who are with us on campus, just look at me on the screen anyway, so there's really not that much of a difference. But if you are visiting with us today or you are watching online uh, for the first time and or maybe you just haven't connected with us even though you have been here or been watching for a while, we would love to know who you are. We would love to connect with you. If you're on campus, you can stop by one of the welcome tents on your way out. Uh, or whether you're on campus or watching online, you can text the word connect uh, to the number you see on the screen and one of our staff members will follow up with you this week. Well, we are in a series called He is Greater Than Fear. Uh, this is our second week. Last week, uh, we talked about uh, how God is with us in times of uncertainty. And as a Christian, because he's with us in those times of uncertainty, we really have no need to fear. And I'll just be honest with you, cards on the table, our, our goal, my goal, is that you would really see over these 10 weeks how incredibly great God is. And, and the reason I want you to see that is, first of all, because I have experienced the greatness of God. But secondly, because that's what Mark is trying to convey. That's what God is writing through Mark as he writes about Jesus is just really how great Jesus is. And then thirdly, because I care about you. And when you understand how great Jesus is, that's really the center of you living this life without fear. So this week, we move on to a story of a demon-possessed man. And we're going to look at how it shows us, this story, this account shows us how great Jesus is and how much encountering him can free you. So we'll walk through it and then we'll let it speak to us. And then I'm going to make four quick points to make sure we grasp the implications of what takes place for us and then we can go home or, well, I guess I can stay home. So uh, let's pray uh, before we get started. God, I just thank you so much uh, for your word. I thank you for how good it is. And Lord, I just pray that you would speak to us through your word. God, you know, I'm thrown off a little bit by uh, having to preach again to an empty room. But yet, Lord, uh, this is not about me. It's about you and what you want to do. And so, Lord, I pray that I would just be your vessel, that I would decrease and that you would increase and God, that you would have your will and your way in our lives as a result of this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, let's get to reading in Mark chapter 5, verse 1. It says, they came to the other, seat of the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. Whenever you hear this phrasing, they come to the other side or the other side, that's often a reference to a movement from a Jewish to Gentile region. And perhaps that's what Jesus meant when he said, let's travel to the other side uh, when they headed out in the boat, as we read last week in Mark 4. However, Luke in his gospel clarifies that they did indeed head opposite of Galilee. 
So Jesus and his disciples traveled from the western side of the Sea of Galilee to the eastern side of the land of the Gerasenes. There's actually a textual dispute that arises with this account in the Gospels. Gerasa was some 30 miles from the Sea of Galilee, so it doesn't make sense for the events that we're about to read uh, taking place there. And there are also some textual variants in the oldest manuscripts between Gerasa and Geregasa and Gardar. So some have concluded then that Mark meant the Gerasene region, not the city itself. You know, I, I would just say that the original text was sure to have written the right place and uh, the precise location really has no bearing on our understanding of this text today. So let's just keep trucking. Verse two, verse two says, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. So when they cross the sea and they get out, a man comes straight for them out of the tombs. Matthew tells us in his account that there is more than one man, but both Mark and Luke choose to focus in on the details of his interaction, of Jesus's interaction with this one man. We learn that he is demon-possessed. He has clearly built a reputation for himself as attempts have likely been made to cure him, and certainly there have been attempts to subdue him. Luke tells us that this man has been like this for a long time. So a question comes to mind when we're reading this is how did this man get like this? I mean, when we encounter someone who acts like this today, we really don't know what to do with them. We are quick to say that he or she is born this way. Granted, there are indeed people who are born this way or similar to this, who have experienced some biological issue that has caused them to get to this place. But in the same way that we should not conclude that all people who are like this are demon-possessed because there might be something that's been like this in them since birth, the same thing should not lead us to automatically, to automatically conclude that all men who act like this are born this way or have experienced mental disease. Because this is what can happen when someone yields themselves to Satan. More and more as time progresses, people can resemble animals. I think this is perhaps why some see uh, evolution to the degree that uh, some have said it exists as a possibility. Because when some people begin to act like animals, uh, it's really clear that they, um, sorry, when some people begin to act like this, they act like animals when it comes to sex, to food, to drink, to emotions. They're not animals, but they begin to act like animals. This is what has happened to this man. We're not sure what led him down this path or, or how he got here, but we know that. Luke tells us this. He didn't really wear clothes. We know that he lives in the tombs. We know that he is full of rage. We know that he is cutting himself. Again, we don't know the details of how he got here, but we don't have to know the details. We know from the scripture that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. First Corinthians chapter, or excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 11 tells us that. 
So we know that often people are led astray, not by something that they know to be bad, but by something that they think or are deceived as good. We know that Satan is a liar and a father of lies. John chapter eight tells us that. And so Satan is lying to us about what the consequences of our choices will be. We know that Satan is our adversary, 1 Peter chapter five. He is against us and we know that he is the accuser, Revelation chapter 12. And so he seeks to keep us in the condition that we are in. And so the place that this man is in is really a state of hopelessness, a state of despair, a state where people want nothing to do with him. And in very many ways, he has probably gone callous to the society who has treated him the way that he is. And while most of this is for him to blame, certainly the treatment that he has experienced only furthers his condition, as we see is the case for many people who end up in places like this. Now, before we read this or hear this and we think, well, I'm not in the tombs running around like this man, we might be in the bedroom on our phone watching pornographic images that degrade humanity. We might be locked up in our house on the weekends or evenings getting drunk while we neglect all of our responsibilities. We might be gathered around with some friends secretly putting down people who we really envy. We might be protecting a nice, excuse me, projecting a nice image and yet constantly berating our spouse and children when no one sees us. And we might be secretly spending our money on our materialistic addictions, constantly enslaving ourselves in more and more debt. And we feel the guilt that comes along with where we're at. But we don't want to be free from our enslavement. We feel the guilt, we feel enslaved, but yet we are driven by this desire to continue to give in to the thing that has us there. And the angel of light, the liar, the adversary, the accuser has us right where he wants us. There's this scene in the movie Scarface where things are starting to blow up uh, for the main character. And they're in this nice restaurant, and, and because of the blow-up that happens between him and his wife, um, everybody's staring at him, and he looks at all these people who are, the movie's implying, are indulgent, who are in many ways living materialistic lives. And Scarface, the, the villain here, says, you need people like me so you can point your fingers and say, that's the bad guy. So what does that make you? Good? You are not good. You just know how to hide. And I think we read accounts of this man in, uh, who's possessed by these demons, who's uh, made these choices that he's made, who lives where he lives, who's acting like he's acting. And it's easy to hide ourselves and point to these extreme examples instead of, instead of asking, what about this speaking to me? What about this might be true of me? And if we're honest, maybe we're hopeless, just like this man who is hopeless because we're so far gone into our sin, because we've been doing the things we've been doing for so long, because we've been running from God for so long. But this man, he encounters Jesus. Verse six, and when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. 
Now, based on what is expressed from the demon, we know that this right here is this man himself's decision to run and fall down before the feet of Jesus out of desperation and possibly to submit to Jesus. But the demon doesn't want anything to do with Jesus, verse seven, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Jesus is urging the demon to come out. So the demon says, what do you want from me? And he implores Jesus not to torment him. Now, Matthew says that the demon speaks in the plural and questions why Jesus is tormenting him before the time. This is the first indicator of the demon's knowledge of his fate. And verse nine says, Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. There was and there still is great power in having knowledge of your opponent. This is why demons often identify Jesus as if they will have some leg up on Jesus by stating who he is. The problem for them, though, is that he has all authority. And Jesus is probably kind of having fun with him here. And he likely knows already who they are, or at least enough of who they are. And regardless, it doesn't matter, Jesus wins. But their answer is legion. And I think they're avoiding the question of who they, their name really is. When you use the phrase legion, you're referring to a military fighting unit in the Roman Empire of about 5,400 soldiers, foot soldiers, and 120 horsemen. They're probably not being literal, but explaining that this man is possessed by an army of demons. They're flexing but I have a 15 pound dog and that 15 pound dog often barks at big dogs like he's going to do something to those big dogs. And the big dogs just stare at him as if they're even the remote bit concerned. And these demons trying to flex saying they are legion at Jesus is like my little dog barking at the big dog. Because look at the very next thing they do. Verse 10, and he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside and they begged him saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. They begin to plead for some mercy. Keep us in this country. Luke says that they asked not to be commanded to be sent into the abyss. This is the second indicator of this demon's knowledge of his fate. Revelation 20 says that the abyss is where Satan will end up. Now also note that they asked not to be commanded they know that they have to do what Jesus says. Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. This confirms now that they are in a close, or they are in a Gentile area or close to a Gentile area as no Jew would have been keeping pigs. The verse 13 says, he, Jesus, gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd numbering about 2,000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. Now, let me quickly say to you that you shouldn't get upset about Jesus allowing those pigs to die if you've ever had barbecue for lunch. And some of you are like, oh, I'm not really upset with the pigs to die, that the pigs died necessarily, just that he allowed that much bacon to go to waste. I too have some questions here about why Jesus did what he did. But as Alistair Begg says, there are some places where you should stand and look at the individual pieces for hours in a gallery, 
And there are some places where you're best served to take in the art in the gallery from afar. I think the most important observation here is that God places more value on this one man's life than the life of these 2,000 pigs. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but in a culture where it's a crime to kill a puppy, but we enable the death of hundreds of thousands of babies every year, while there are a few exceptions, mostly because of the inconvenience of having a child, it needs to be emphasized that human life is more valuable than an animal's life in the eyes of God, and therefore it should be in our eyes. Verse 14 says, the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. They came and they saw this man. They knew who this man was. They knew about this man. They had protected their children. They had protected their wives. They had protected their possessions from this man. And here he was, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. You see, power brings fear. This kind of power brings fear. And before you think, well, I would never be afraid of Jesus. Some have said the loss of money here from these 2,000 pigs is what concerned them. And while we don't know that, I would say that it is certainly something to think about. The implications of the work of Jesus on our income and on our security. And when we really encounter who Jesus is, that he is the Lord and he has this kind of authority and this kind of power, some of us are afraid of him because it might affect our bank account and our lifestyle. What if you liked having control of your life? What if you liked having control of your region? And Jesus has the kind of authority that you knew you needed to submit to him. You see, the fear associated with this kind of loss, the fear that's associated with this kind of power and demonstration of authority is a similar thread throughout the Bible. It's the reason that people don't follow Jesus, the reason people ultimately had Jesus killed. And so look at what they do here. Verse 16, and those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Because of this fear, they asked Jesus to leave. You'd think they would be so grateful that this man was freed and that he wouldn't cause them trouble anymore. But what I have noticed is that we often say we want people to be free, but that we often end up afraid of their deliverance more than we were annoyed with their enslavement. Because for some of us, there's a person who has caused us great harm in our life, great heartache in our life. And much of our identity has been shaped into responding to the harm that they caused us. But when Jesus changes their life, we don't know what to do with that anymore. I've legitimately counseled many couples 
who, and it's usually the wife, she's trying to follow Jesus and she's trying to do her thing for Jesus and the husband's kind of not interested in Jesus and there's implications on his life and then God changes him and all of a sudden he wants to become the spiritual leader of the home and she actually isn't necessarily that happy about it because it's causing things to be different than how they have been for her. Often, we have those friends who they do life with us and we like the way we do, that we do life with them, but God gets a hold of them and their following God begins to disrupt the comfort we have and the way we have done life with them. And ultimately, what I would say is that this kind of power, this kind of freedom when we see that person who's caused us harm change, when we see our spouse change, when we see our friend change, might reveal to us our need for deliverance. We may have just been kind of taking some pride in the fact that we have it better off than these people, and yet when God changes their life, we begin to be convicted about the fact that maybe we don't have the freedom that we thought we had. So this man is freed and Jesus is who freed him. And so all he wants now is to be with Jesus. Verse 18. He was getting into, as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. And that's the end of our text today. And I just want to make sure there are four things that we take home with us from what we read. The first thing is this man wants to be with Jesus. And he has been healed. He has been freed. And so he loves Jesus now. But what Jesus asked him to do is to go and tell others how much the Lord has done and how he has had mercy on him. When he says to go to the Decapolis, those are 10 free Greek cities under Roman rule. This would advance the gospel into the Gentile region. You see, Jesus' priority for those who are going to be with him for eternity is his mission for us on this earth. Declaring what Jesus has done for us and his mercy for us is his earthly priority for those who will spend eternity with him. Declaring what Jesus has done for us and his mercy for us is his earthly priority for those who will spend eternity with him. Now I talk about this all the time. So I don't want to labor, belabor the point this morning. But here you have a guy who's healed, who says, I want to be with you, Jesus, because of what you've done for me. And Jesus says, the greatest thing you can do is tell other people about my power. So this man leaves the presence of Jesus to tell others about the power of Jesus. Now, on this side of Pentecost, on this side of the Holy Spirit coming down and dwelling in the lives of believers, we don't have to choose this way. 
We don't have to choose between being with Jesus and being on mission for Jesus. We don't have to choose between being present with Jesus and being present in the world. So we should be more focused on mission because he is with us on mission. Living sent for us is, is about choosing to be with Jesus in mission, on mission in the world. It's choosing, it, it, that's not the choice we're making. It's not that we're choosing, am I with Jesus or am I on mission? We're choosing my comfort or the mission. And Jesus is with you as you step out of your comfort to proclaim who he is. I said I wouldn't belabor the point, so let's move on to the second thing. The second thing is that the demons know that Jesus has all authority on heaven and on earth. Do you? The demons know that Jesus has all authority on heaven and on earth, do you? They know that they have to do, ultimately, what Jesus commands. He doesn't command all demons to stop what they're doing for some reason, free will, his plan. We don't fully understand all that. I'm not gonna get into all that. But the demons understand their eternal fate. They allude to that in this passage. That in the end, there's no avoiding the reality of heaven and hell. And so Jesus has all authority. Does your life reflect that? You see, that's why I even refer to the mission of Jesus the way I refer to the mission of Jesus so often, because in Jesus's great commission, before he ascends to heaven, he tells the disciples that he has all authority on heaven and on the earth. And so he says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and I will be with you. Jesus says, I'm with, I have authority. Here's what I've asked you to do and I'm with you in this. And the demons understand this, and I would say that those who, who believe in Jesus, who are saved because a part of salvation is believing he is Lord, say, hey, I'm gonna try now to rightly live my life under the authority that you have. Do you believe he has that kind of authority, and does your life reflect that? And that kind of leads me to the third thing. The power of Jesus scares those who do not submit to him. Are you scared of him? The power of Jesus scares those who do not submit to Jesus. Are you scared of him? And again, the, the, the churchy answer to this is, no, we would never be scared of Jesus. But I, I wanna read to you a poem that was written by William Arthur Dunkerley, and it's really based on this text here in Matthew. It says, Rabbi, be gone. Thy powers bring loss to us and ours. Our ways are not as thine. Thou lovest men, we love swine. O get you hence omnipotence and take this fool of thine. His soul, what care we for his soul? What good to us that thou hast made him whole since we have lost our swine? And Christ went sadly he had wrought for them a sign of love and hope and tenderness divine. They wanted swine. Christ stands without your door and gently knocks. But if your gold or swine the entrance blocks, he forces no man's hold. He will depart and leave you to the treasures of your heart. Some of our fears in this life 
are really a fear of the losing the things that we want. And it's very simple to say, Jesus helps us overcome fear. But when we really encounter Jesus, we have to deal with the fact that what we might fear is the loss of ourselves and the things that we want. And we're not willing to let go of those. And so Jesus is someone we want to get rid of because we're worried about what he will do or how we spend our time or how we spend our money or the character choices we have or the personality things that we cling to. But when we understand the power of Jesus and we understand what Jesus is doing, I'm telling you, there has to be this degree of trusting in him. And, and, and here's, I can't convince you of that, but here's what I would say to you. If we encounter Jesus and we run from him and we run into these things, if we're given enough time and we're given enough freedom, we'll find ourselves like this man. We might not find ourselves in the tombs, but where we will find ourselves is dark and lonely. And that is some of you today. But there's good news. And I think something incredibly important we see from this text. And the last thing that I want us to see is this. Jesus places value on one rescued soul. There might have been more demon-possessed men here, but the focus is on this one and what is happening to him. And you need to look at this and you need to see Satan is desperate. Have you ever seen someone who is desperate, who knows that they're going to lose? They're done. They're surrounded and they begin to cause as much damage and as much harm to others as possible. That's your enemy. And we are like hostages at, at war. And his goal is to take as many with us as possible. This is how he operates. And he's the accuser. And as soon as he has the moment to accuse us of something, he's going to do that. And most people assume that whenever they feel bad about their sin or about themselves, it must be the Holy Spirit, especially those who grew up in a religious background. But there's also accusations from the adversary. I alluded to this earlier. Revelation 12 verse 10 says that he accuses them day and night. But you see, there's a difference between how Satan accuses us and how the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin. When Satan tries to convict us of our sin, he starts with what you did and tears down who you are. And some of you are hearing, you are a failure. There's no hope for you. You're beyond the love of God and beyond the grace of God. You're hearing it would have been better if you had never been born. And if someone was next to you saying this, you'd rightly say, this is someone who opposes me. This is someone who's accusing me. But because it's from a spirit that's invisible to the eye, you think it's low self-esteem or low self-image or negative self-talk. And while I know that circumstances and experiences get us here and there are real mental challenges, again, I'm not displaying that, 
I just also want to say that often what's really taking place is spiritual warfare. Three times Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness, and each time he began the temptation with this statement, if you are the son of God. Interestingly, that's what the father had just declared over Jesus at his baptism. You are my beloved son. He's trying to get Jesus to doubt his identity in God. First John tells us to test the spirits and to see if they are holy or they are unholy. Who do these spirits serve? You see, the adversary knows what he is doing. And based on your upbringing and based on your experiences and based on your personality, he's either going to convince you that you are worthless or he's going to convince you of the sufficiency of your religion and some version of the American dream that mask your feelings of worthlessness. And that might be you this morning. And you're struggling and you're overwhelmed and you're lost and you're hopeless. The hope is to get in front of Jesus. This demon-possessed man was real and he was delivered and he has a story to tell. But he also represents the old person who stands naked before the eyes of God and desperately needs to be clothed with the righteousness of God, with the garments of the new man or the new woman. You see, this man is a threat to himself if left to his own desires, but at the feet of Jesus, this man is made free, showing us that we are not the sum of our actions. We are not what others have done to us. We are not what others have said about us. You are not what the voices inside whisper about you. You are what Christ has declared over you. And the way that God saves him, well, it gets people's attention and it confronts them with the power of God to save them. And that's the message that he carries out. And that's the message of Jesus. Luke in his gospel, Luke 4, 18, Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and so you might find yourself deep in a sin that you are hiding yourselves from deep into choices that you have made over the course of your life and you feel hopeless and you feel lost and here is what I'm telling you today just get to the feet of Jesus just get to the feet of Jesus and not because I say so but because God in his word says so You just need to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead and you will be saved, delivered, freed, clothed in righteousness. Look, just confess that to Jesus now. We're gonna pray in just a second and just make that the cry of your heart. Save me, Lord, from what I'm in and he will save you. If we can help you in any way in your journey of freedom that Christ brings, let us know. Please text the word believe to the number that is on the screen and one of our pastors will follow up with you. We'd be happy 
to do that. I'm quarantined right now. I got plenty of time to text you and call you and talk to you about what it means to follow Jesus. And no matter how busy are we are, no matter what we do, I'm telling you that the priority of this church is to help you experience the kind of freedom that Jesus can bring and change your life. And Christians, we have been freed by Jesus. The old has been made new. And so we go and we proclaim to the Decapolis, to the 10 cities, to wherever God takes us, that Jesus has come and he brings sight to the blind, good news to the poor, and liberty to the captives. Jesus sets us free. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you. That when we read these words, they come alive because your spirit is alive. And I pray this morning for anyone who feels they are too far gone, that they would just come to you. And when they realize the authority you have on heaven, on the earth, and under the earth, they would see there is nothing, there is no one that is too far gone from the power and the love of Jesus Christ. And they would experience that today. And oh Lord, you have given us Christians this freedom. God, help us to see the people we see who are entrapped and enslaved the way that you see them, not the way that the world sees them. And help us to be your messengers of freedom. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.